Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored by The Bones of You by Debbie Howell. Girls like Rosie don't get into real trouble. At least that's what Kate thought before becoming obsessed with the mystery of what happened to the young girl found murdered in her quiet English village. The Bones of You, Howell's debut novel, has been compared to The Lovely Bones and Reconstructing Amelia. Uncover the secrets yourself and pick up The Bones of You on sale wherever books are sold and at kensingtonbooks.com. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 112. We're recording on Friday, June 26th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with... It's July 2nd. Oh! (laughs) This is what happens when you forget to update your notes. Uh, So this is episode 112. That is true, but it is Friday, July 2nd. I'm Rebecca Shinsky. I'm here with Amanda Nelson, who is more Hello. correct than I am this morning. The ever pedantic Amanda <laughs> Nelson. <laughs> Jeff's in Kansas for the week with family. Did I trade one pedantic co-host for another? You might have. <laughs> you might have done it. We're Sorry. coming to you from bookriot.com. It's a good week this week. We have spent so much quality time together. So much road tripping. So much. We went to um, a fellow Book Riot person's wedding over the weekend, and then we went to Holland's College in beautiful Roanoke, Virginia, earlier this week uh, to speak to a course there. So we're we're just you know like we might as well buy ourselves a snuggie built for two and <laughs> <laughs> settle into our life together. Life partners. Right here. <laughs> we are. Uh, you've got some cool stuff happening on the site this week. Do you want to tell us about that before we get into the show? Yeah, we're in best of Book Riot mode this week. Uh, Started yesterday the 1st and will continue until the 7th, mostly for the 4th of July holiday. Everybody's out hopefully drinking cold beverages in a hammock somewhere. Um, So we are running kind of a highlight reel, the best posts from the previous six months uh, that each contributor has put up. So it's like the best of the best. Yeah, definitely worth taking a look at the site, especially if you're relatively new to Book Riot, but just in general, because you know, you're bound to miss something. There is so, so much good stuff. And there's so much of it. Yes. (laughs) We have so many contributors now that best of is a big undertaking. So it's nice. And the big, big news, which we just announced online this morning um, on Friday, which is July 2nd, um, (laughs) is that Margaret Atwood will be speaking at Book Riot Live. Yay! I'm doing Muppet Arms. Doing, girl. Uh, We are so excited about this. Um, If you have not heard, Book Riot Live is the two-day event that we're hosting on November 7th and 8th in New York, and you should come and hang out with us. We have an incredible, diverse array of authors and book-related, like book-adjacent publishing-type people, all sorts of stuff. You can check out bookriotlive.com to see the speaker lineup so far, to sign up for the newsletter, or to buy your tickets, which you should go ahead and do as a special for listeners of this show, because we know that y'all are devoted. We want to hang out with you. We're going to do some live recordings of podcasts while we're there. And uh, you know that you want the opportunity to watch me and Jeff and Amanda be awkward having to make eye contact with each other in person. Uh, (laughs) You can save $20 on your Book Riot Live ticket using our special Book Riot podcast discount code wheelhouse. Very appropriate. Very appropriate. So go to bookriotlive.com, check it out, decide you're going to come hang out with us in New York for a few days in November and use the code wheelhouse to save 20 bucks when you do. All right, let's get into our, actually, we got to get to our first sponsor. So Scribd is back this week. We love them. Uh, If you don't know what Scribd is, it's a subscription book service that gives you unlimited access to a library of more than half a million ebooks and audiobooks and comics. Uh, Head over to scribd.com slash bookriot to get a free month. That's S-C-R-I-B-D dot com slash bookriot. Scribd has books from some of the biggest publishers, major houses like HarperCollins and Simon & Schuster and Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. They also work with small presses like McSweeney's, CounterPoint, 
Tin House. You all, you'll have access to more than 30,000 audiobooks, including some big new releases, which is a cool thing that uh, the subscription services have been able to get access to. Uh, I listened to Missoula by John Krakauer. That's available on Scribd. Um, even more importantly, Scribd makes sure that you can find your way to books you're going to love. So they have hundreds of collections that are curated by their team of editors, and they also tailor recommendations for you based on the books that you've loved or not. As you read stuff in Scribd, you can rate it, and they will recommend you stuff based on what you like and based on knowing what you don't like. So hopefully it just gets better and better and better. Uh, I love Scribd and the ebook subscription model in general because it makes it so easy to take some risks with your reading without having to really pay much for those risks. It's not a lot of cost to, you know, to read a genre that you've never read before or to try a new author because you're going to pay the flat fee for the month or in this case you'll have a month for free and then after that it's 8.99 a month. But you know, you can read 50 pages like Nancy Pearl would tell you to give it a shot don't like it just move on to something else you're not out any extra money because you took that risk with your reading it's a great way to expand your horizons when you go to scribd.com slash book riot you'll also see a curated collection that we made of some of the book riot favorites that are available in scribd including uh, a sport and a pastime by james salter which i talked about in great depth and with much gushing last week um, you can read Oh, what is the name of Jasmine Ward's memoir? I cannot remember now. Um, Men We Reaped? Yes, you can read okay. <laughs> You can read Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward. Uh, a whole bunch of other books that we love. And my favorite short story collection ever, What the World Will Look Like When All the Water Leaves Us by Laura Vandenberg is on that list. There's just a ton of great stuff. Um, this is especially great, I think, for travel this summer. If you've got a tablet or your phone with you, you can download the Scribd app, which is free, and then have unlimited reading of ebooks, audiobooks, and now they have comics in the palm of your hand, literally. You don't have to stack up your uh, suitcase and or your backpack or weigh yourself down with books for your summer travel. It's just awesome. So go to scribd.com slash bookriot to get started today and get 30 days of unlimited reading, listening, and comicsing. And you'll be supporting the show when you do it. So everybody wins. Thanks to them. All right, let's get into the news. What do you got? Oh, this ebook thing? You want to start there? Sure. Th- this ebook <laughs> this thing. We've got an ebook so thing. So descriptive. <laughs> Uh, the Association of American Publishers um, is bringing out a new full year snapshot of the U.S. book market. They're calling it Statshot Annual. Ooh. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> they use, but they use the term sample size, so I'm excited. Uh, their sample size is larger than what some of the monthly reports are uh, in publishing. This is drawing on annual data reported by nearly 1,800 participating U.S. publishers. Also, just let that wash over you that there are more than 1,800. U.S. publishers. Wait, there aren't only five? I thought thought there were only five. I know. It's Mm -hmm. amazing. Uh, They're making some educated guesses based on their research using some reports um, and over 70,000 business entities that have active ISBNs, um, which are, you know, like the social security numbers for the books to try to figure out what's going on. So the data are suggesting that U.S. publishers earned about $28 billion in revenue in 2014, um, and that ebooks grew 3.8% to roughly 3.33 to basically 3 billion and 370 million, 3.37 billion in revenue last year. Oh my gosh, I cannot number this more. The overall trend um, is basically showing it's mostly flat growth over the past several years. So this this 3.8% growth in ebooks is a pretty small uptick. Um, and for the very first time ever, since we've been speaking of Scribd, this survey also tracks revenue from subscription platforms. Um, it just says here that segment of the market remains small. Uh, but subscription audio titles are so far exceeding subscription ebooks. That's interesting. Um, Makes sense. Yeah. Among the 20 publishers that reported revenue from subscription services, and that's interesting because we really only hear about a few of them in the publishing news on a regular basis, um, some 3.88 million audiobooks and 2.47 million ebooks were distributed via those platforms. So the audiobooks are about a third bigger 
um, or no, half again. So it's like 150% of um, what eBooks are doing. I should stop trying to do math this morning. This is, this <laughs> no is not pretty, but numbers. this is, this is interesting that um, the eBook growth does seem to have flattened out a little bit. Yeah, it didn't go. It went down the year before mm-hmm. a few points and then back up. So it's basically the same. I'm sure that the agency pricing thing had something to do with that. Yeah, that's true. I thought the most interesting thing out of this that I noticed is the pie chart because I like pie charts. And ebooks accounted for 21% of book sales and hardcovers were 23%. So ebooks are are almost selling as many mm. units as hardcovers. That's interesting. Um, which is actually less than I expected some for some reason. Oh. I don't know. I expected it to be to go like hardcover ebook paperback. Yeah, and paperbacks are by far the most popular. Ebooks have 21% of the market, hardbacks are 23 and then paperbacks are 38%. And, and it, downloaded audio and ebook subscriptions are less than 1%. Yeah. I hope we get some numbers about these subscription services, actual numbers, not just hand-waving numbers yeah. sometime soon because like with Scribd and with Oyster and with the some of the smaller services, we ha- we don't know. We have no idea. They're not reporting publicly how many subscribers they have or how many books have been read or I guess not downloaded, but how many books have been s- streamed basically. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, this says 2.47 million ebook units sold. I'm making air quotes right now. <laughs> um, but I don't think that these services count a book as sold until you've read past a certain point. Yeah, it's usually about 10%, I think. Yeah, so two point, so 2.47 million. If we knew how many books the average reader of the services read, we could parse it out. Mm-hmm. But we don't even know that, yeah. so... It's no idea. many questions, more questions than answers. This uh, <laughs> This study from... The American Association of Publishers also notes that retail sales are up, but that online is still the top source for book sales. Um, But in-store book sales had been declining uh, steadily for several years, but physical retail stores saw a 3.2% increase in revenue um, and a 4.1% increase in units sold. Um, But online retail remains the top sales channel. Um, They've sold... 832 million units providing 5.9 billion dollars in revenue and that's against the 3.8 billion uh, in revenue from uh, almost from actual stores almost twice as much so yes interesting we, we, there's mm-hmm. always a lot of like uh, well this this study hasn't been out that long this week but I'm interested in how it's gonna get spun like someone will take some one tidbit and it'll it will all of a sudden become like bookstores aren't doomed. <laughs> Or ebooks are killing hardcovers, mm-hmm. as opposed to ebooks are killing books. We can't really say that anymore because right. it's obviously nonsensical. But I bet somebody could spin it. All right, I see to the hardcover thing. I see Kafka on the agenda, so I would like to move oh. and find out what what is this Kafka story. <laughs> this is I like it. I like this story because it sounds like something Kafka would have written. <laughs> sort of, it's it's very uh, the trial ish. So Ka- Kafka, Franz Kafka, who wrote the Metamorphosis and the Trial, obviously. Um, He died in 1924. Most of his work was published after he was already dead. And uh, he entrusted all of his manuscripts and works and all of his papers to his best friend, Max Brode. I don't know if I'm saying that right. B-R-O-D. And told him famously to burn them. And Max did not. He took the papers and the manuscripts with him to Palestine when he fled the Nazis um, in the 30s. When Brode died... In the 60s, he left all of Kafka's papers to his secretary. (laughs) Okay. For reasons. um, With instructions to publish the work and make sure that after her death, Kafka's estate was placed somewhere for safekeeping in a suitable institution, is what his will said. Um, But what she did is, like, gave the stuff to her daughters, and they've been kind of piecemeal auctioning them off to the highest bidder. And then... um, the attorney general of Israel told them that they couldn't do that anymore what? because it violated uh, Max Brode's will, which specifically said you have to publish the work and keep them safe or give them to an institution, mm-hmm. but they've just been selling them. And so now uh, this has been in court for like almost a decade. And now a Tel Aviv district court have, has upheld the attorney general's decision saying that they they basically Israel owns all of Kafka's papers now, and they're going to put it in the Israel National Library, um, 
And sorry about your will, I guess. I think it's funny that, like, they are really sticking to Max Brode's will, but totally ignoring the fact that Kafka wanted all this stuff burnt. Like, they don't care what he wanted. They care about the thing that lets them keep these Mm -hmm. really valuable items in the country. So Uh, so that's the weird Kafka That is weird. And it's perfectly (laughs) Kafka-esque, but... Man, when your friend tells you to burn all their stuff down. Mm, you burn it. You burn, you it, burn down. it down. I know, yes. Yes. Yeah. Where were you? I know Jeff and I talked a couple weeks ago about the friend of Harper Lee's that was going to sell her letters mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. was unable to. They weren't sold at auction. Where are you on that? Does this also like we should we should just what do you think? It squicks uh, me out. It's the Harper Lee stuff squicks me out. Totally. Like the, her personal letters that were written before she was, you know, Harper Lee or um, even if they weren't before, even if they were after she was Harper Lee, I find that really kind of squicky. Um, with Kafka, I feel a little differently about it because it's manuscripts and we would have never gotten the metamorphosis or any of his books if Max hadn't ignored mm-hmm. his wishes and published them after Kafka was dead. Um, so these aren't private letters. Yeah, so this is public good of getting the literature. Getting the and Kafka's yeah, I don't dead, feel like so we're getting he it. He's not yeah. suffering. Yeah, I don't feel like we're getting anything out of Harper Lee's, like, a note she wrote to somebody when she was 25. Like, that doesn't contribute anything to, like, greater literary culture, I guess. I don't know. I feel like that's, my logic here has holes in it, but I don't feel like poking (laughs) at them because they are working for me right now. (laughs) It's early in the morning, and it is July 2nd, and I will not demand ethical consistency of you. (laughs) Fantastic. (laughs) I cannot give it to you anyways. (laughs) So apparently this family, this secretary's family, had been kept had kept the collection in a safety deposit box. Okay. As they were selling it off piecemeal. So they weren't even like they weren't letting I guess scholars have access to it. Hmm. You know, there was no no scholarship happening, whatever. So Man, that's gonna be interesting to follow. It'll be cool when the they, they've said they're going to post all of Kafka's documents online as well. Mm-hmm. So it'll be cool when those become available. For perusing, speaking speaking of ethical consistency, here is something that we are consistent about, and that we are consistently <laughs> angry about. Uh, we've been following the story of a teacher in uh, North Carolina, South Carolina, yeah. North Carolina, North Carolina. Um, who was who came under fire and then who quit his job after reading a book about gay about a gay character to um, kids in his classroom to to address the fact that they were bullying a student um, and calling him uh, gay slurs. It's happening, something similar is happening in Texas, not in a classroom, but in a public library. Um, Two LGBT-themed children's books are um, causing some trouble at the Granbury, Texas Public Library. Dozens of community members have demanded that My Princess Boy and This Day in June be either banned from the library (laughs) or moved out of the children's section. The libraries received more than 50,000, not 50,000, 50, 50, (laughs) man, numbers. Um, The libraries have received more than 50 challenge forms that raise concerns about the picture books, which are aimed at readers um, ages four to eight. And as per usual, the residents are objecting to the books, claiming that they endorse the gay lifestyle and that they encourage, wait for it, perversion. Winner, winner. (laughs) Bigot bingo, center square. Seriously. Perversion. And I just, okay, can I just say, my princess boy is not about... It's about a boy who likes to wear dresses, which is not, it means nothing. I, like, a, a, whether a skirt, whether you're wearing a skirt or pants, mm-hmm. like, there's no gender but I think in the garment that you put on the bottom of your body. This particular brand of bigotry would hold that dressing a boy like a girl could turn him gay. Oh, sure. Totally. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think it's notable that um, this county, this library is in Hood County, which is the same county um with the after the SCOTUS ruling mm-hmm. legalizing oh, gay marriage, right, right. yeah, it's the same county where the county clerk refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples because it violated her religious freedom. So this is the same little town mm-hmm. in Texas that, yeah, yes. Rose Myers is a Granbury City Councilwoman. She uh, is not pleased with these books. Her objection, she says, is based on the fact that if the library would not move the books and keep them in an appropriate location, they should be. Removed, And uh, she basically says the a four-year-old couldn't understand the content of this kind of book without the help of an adult. 
Four-year-olds can't understand anything without the help of an adult, first of all. I have two four-year-olds. They don't understand anything in life about anything, (laughs) number one. And number two, they don't need, like, a child, you don't have to explain. Kids are so blank. You don't have to explain that it's weird that a boy is wearing a skirt. Like, they will just take that for granted. As long as they haven't heard you say otherwise, they will, like, it's just normal. And that's the point. That is the point. And Courtney Kincaid, who's the director of the library, says that she had, has moved this day in June to the nonfiction section of the library, but she has declined to remove the books outright because, quote, the books have color drawings and they have some rhymes and lesbians and gays are in this community and they deserve to have some items in this collection. Uh, so she wants to serve the people in her community. Um, we've talked over and over and over on this show about representation in publishing and in books and how important it is that not only we tell stories about who's here so that everyone has the opportunity to see themselves in books and to have that normalizing. Like we tell stories about you, you are normal and you are valuable and your story matters, but also because books serve so much to introduce us to ideas that we wouldn't bump up against in our daily lives or to, t- to teach us about what other people's experiences are about and essentially to help us develop empathy, um, removing books from a collection because you don't want children to be exposed to the notion of the fact that gay people are real. Uh, It says a whole lot about what you think about gay people's humanity um, or the the degree to which you doubt or devalue it. Um, Man, it's so disappointing, but also just at this point, so unsurprising that we continue to hear these. It's almost become like I made the joke about the bingo card, but it's become people who, who do this kind of thing, who challenge LGBTQ books and libraries and stuff in their statements and in their reasoning and in their total lack of logic. It becomes Wait, reasoning like a, in scare quotes. Right, right, right. I am actually making the scare quote. I mean, I forget that you can't see me doing this, but here <laughs> I am making scare quotes. Um, they're like caricatures of like a villain in a in Harry Potter, mm-hmm. you know? Like, what's the silliest thing that I could say that makes the least amount of sense and devalues a person as much as humanly possible while clutching my pearls and trying to remain like a respectable, upstanding citizen of wherever? It's just, it's so infuriating to me. It's just so infuriating. I can't. Just don't let your kids read it if you have a problem with it. Exactly. Your four-year-old can't check out a book from the library on his own. And so maybe you just, if you have a problem with the existence of these stories, you just don't read these stories to your child. Um, But then you're raising the kind of child who goes out into the world thinking that it's different than the way it actually is. Yep. Uh, Gay people are here. They're here. And now they have all the rights that straight people have. Isn't it crazy? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? Oh, <laughs> we're going to do nothing. We're just going to continue living our lives like normal people because, hello, <gasps> I need to calm down. <laughs> Calmest lady on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Is that a title that either one of us could ever earn? I'm not so. No. I'm not sure. We no. should go from a story about people who don't want gay stories to be told to a story about Gamergate. That seems like the logical oh, yeah, that's a great. segue. Do you see what I'm doing there? That's really good. Well I, done. You dropped this link into our agenda this morning, and I didn't read it because I want I want the delight of you telling me <laughs> about so it. This is, this is mostly just hilarious. So Judy Bloom, of course everybody knows who Judy Bloom is, was in a uh, magazine, a Time magazine recently, and, in an interview, and the, the journalist asked her what she thought about trigger warnings. And Judy Bloom had not heard about trigger warnings, which were, of course, very controversial anyway. And so she was coming at it from like, a, well, I don't I don't know what that is. And so the interviewer explained the concept of a trigger warning to her um, in the context of like college classrooms. And Judy Bloom's response was basically, um, that's ridiculous. She said, this makes my blood boil. I've heard of it now that you tell me what it is. Let's grow up, basically. So she was kind of dismissive of trigger warnings. And then Gamergate Somehow, like, right-wing Gamergate uh, people got a hold of this and, like, screenshotted it because it was in, like, Time Magazine, Mm -hmm. the print magazine, and screenshotted it as, like, yay, Judy Bloom. Like, (laughs) Judy Bloom gets it. The censorship is coming from the left now and not the right. And retweeted it and retweeted it. And now there's this, like, movement in the Gamergate community to make Judy Bloom, like, their dead mother, basically. (laughs) And they keep, they're tweeting at her, like... (laughs) Oh, man. 
It's just so the best because she made some off the cuff remark about about trigger warnings. They think that she's going to in any way be sympathetic to like Judy Bloom is such a vocal, adamant feminist that the idea of her even knowing what gamer gay is or associating right. it with, with it at all if she if she did it's just so good it just makes me so right happy. yeah judy bloom is the one who taught like every at least at most women readers and many uh male readers of our generation about sex and periods and growing up and you know speaking about experiences in a real way like in, in ways that didn't really exist in books for us at least when i was a kid like young adult literature wasn't really a thing um when i was a teenager but there was there was judy bloom you know i have to say the way that i am thinking about this now is like it, you're right judy bloom is never going to take up the Gamergate cause. But any time that the Gamergaters are excited about a thing that you've said, or you find yourself on the same side of an argument as the Gamergaters, it's worth some personal examination. Like I'm reading the screenshot from Time Now, and she's saying like, why are we treating college students like babies? You're supposed to be challenged. And we've talked about trigger warnings a lot on the show. And I think... You know, Judy Bloom is 77. I presume that she's not like as steeped in the waters of the Internet as we are and as even younger people involved in books and publishing and education are. And so I got to say, I think Judy Bloom's wrong about this one. I'm sorry that Gamergate is trying to recruit her. Uh, mm-hmm. But I think this is an older school mindset that that ignores you know per, people's traumatic experiences and says like well you should just have to deal with whatever comes up in the classroom uh, and awareness and sensitivity to those issues comes I think primarily now from the conversations that are popping up especially on Twitter and Tumblr um, I'm sorry to see Judy Bloom be on what I perceive as the wrong side of this fence I feel like she was also sort of misled. Like when she asked the interviewer, what's a trigger warning? Mm -hmm. The answer that the interviewer gives her is some is like, oh, we're going to teach classics like Ovid to college students and tell them there's murder and rape in here. So if you don't like Uh, that, don't read it. mm -hmm. And that's not what trigger warnings are for. And that's not how they're worded. And that's not the purpose. And so Judy Bloom's answer is like is kind of understandably. Oh, well, that sounds like censorship or that sounds like banning a book or that sounds like, you know challenging a book in a college classroom. And it does sound that way when you word it mm-hmm. in a completely non-factual, inappropriate way that has nothing to do with reality. Um, so I, I get I get why she answered the way she did, but it just shows a fundamental misunderstanding of the purpose of and nature of mm-hmm. a trigger warning. Um, I mean, I know professors who have trigger warnings in their, in, in their classrooms, and they don't... Um, they don't give the ones that I know anyway, this is anecdotal, but they don't give alternate reading assignments. It's not it's not like if you're sensitive to this trauma, you don't have to read it. It's like, hey, uh, to prepare you, here's what's coming. Mm, right. But and you still have to read it. Yeah. Or you can, or you can choose course. not to. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, I feel like. Well, yeah, I think we haven't settled on like actually what a trigger warning is. And so there are there are different variations. I imagine there are classrooms where it's there are things and it would depend on the teacher, I guess. There are things in this book and maybe you can have an alternate assignment. The the like the connection of Ovid here is interesting. Like that's a it's a weird example to give. Yeah. <laughs> like. Uh, I don't know. I think that was I agree. It's not the the best explanation or uh, the best wording. But like I had a similar problem. This is a tangent, but it's our show. So we're going to go on one. Um, Do it. At the end of um, Azar Nafisi's book, The Republic of Imagination, which is yeah. about um, <clears throat> democracy and fiction. And she is also an older writer who is not as steeped in the Internet, um, goes on a similar like she kind of goes on a rant at the end, near the end of her book about like uh, how literature is supposed to challenge and teach us and we should face up to the difficult things that are in literature rather than avoid them. And I think that reveals a fundamental lack of understanding about uh, traumatic triggers, which are a thing we're really just starting to talk about in culture Mm -hmm. in a way that is productive. Um, But I thought that was interesting coming from her specifically because she is from Iran, right? Mm -hmm. And fled Iran and came here. And so there's obviously some trauma in her life. And um, to take, like, she, I have read the book, and she takes a really hard, very, like, kind of angry stance against trigger warnings uh, in the book. And so I just thought that was interesting that someone from a traumatic Mm -hmm. background would have that sort of opinion. Yeah, I think it fell, for me, it fell into, like, 
everyone is different. And so some yeah. people like some rape survivors can read about rape and be just fine. And then other rape survivors cannot read about rape. Reading a rape scene in a book would trigger them into, you know, a re-experience of that trauma. And so the, you create trigger warnings with the acknowledgement that that's a reality for some people and for the people that are fine for the rape survivors in a classroom who can read it while well, they know it's there and they're going to read it anyway and they're going to be okay. But we acknowledge that not everyone can do that um, and that there are real reasons why not everyone can do that. Um, it, I didn't love it. But yeah. I do think it's a generation gap sort of issue. And I do love Judy Bloom very deeply. And this uh, BuzzFeed uh, piece that you've linked to ends with a quote from a, a, another piece that she gave where she says, my life is about feminism. Uh, man, I hope Gamergate doesn't turn on her. <laughs> <laughs> what are they going to do to Judy Bloom? I don't know. I don't want Judy Bloom to like spend weeks getting trolled on Twitter. <laughs> oh, Yeah. She, she, whatever. I, in my mind, she's like, she's too high <laughs> to be touched by, by trolls. I guess no one is really. But. And that is the truth. Uh, let's go to our next sponsor before we move on. Uh, this week's show is also brought to us by Mon Man by Kim Twe T. I'm not sure. I am terribly sorry that I'm mispronouncing uh, this. Uh, this is a story about Mon, who has three mothers, the one who gave birth to her in wartime, the nun who plucked her from a vegetable garden, and her beloved Mama, who becomes a spy to survive. Seeking security for her grown daughter, Maman finds Mon, a husband. Uh, who, he's a lonely Vietnamese restaurateur who lives in Montreal. Uh, so Mon goes from uh, from her home over to Montreal. She's thrown into a new world and discovers her natural talent as a chef. Um, she practices her art using food as her medium, creating dishes that are more, uh, much more than sustenance for her body. They evoke memory and emotion, time and place, and they even bring her customers to tears. Um, she's a mystery. Her name means perfect fulfillment, but she and her husband seem to just drift along respectfully and sort of out of duty to each other. Um, and then she encounters a married chef in Paris, and everything changes in the instant of a fleeting touch. Uh -oh. And so Mon discovers the all-encompassing obsession and ever-present dangers of a love affair. Uh, this book has been selected by Barnes & Noble for their uh, Discover pick, so you can watch for it to be featured uh, at Barnes & Noble stores across the country and, I'm sure, online. In Canada, Kim Twee has won, or Thi, it's T-H-U-Y, um, I will learn how to pronounce this, uh, has won just about every major award that there is, including the Governor General's Award for Best Fiction Book. Uh, and the debut novel, Rue, which is R-U, won Canada Reads this past year, which is a program that selects one book that all of Canada should be reading. Uh, so this is a, uh, this right, Kim Twee is a very popular and well-known, highly acclaimed Canadian writer. And now we are getting to see more of her work here in the United States. Uh, so the book is Mon, it's M-A-N with a tilde over the A. And you can check it out wherever books are sold. Thank you to them for sponsoring the show. Okay, what's Word. next? Miss Landingham. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so deep into my rewatch of season one of the West Wing. It's just going to be West Wing references again here for a while. Are you, can we end the show with you doing the jackal? I know people won't be able to see it, but <laughs> just don't really... don't talk to me during the jackal. Okay, <laughs> are you are you talking to me during the jackal, <laughs> Toby? I love Toby. <laughs> anyway, let's do Ray Bradbury. Oh, Ray Bradbury, my boyfriend. <laughs> Your book boyfriend. We talked about this, I feel like, a long time ago, like a year ago or so, um, that Ray Bradbury's home was ha had been sold and was being demolished, which womp womp. is a sad story in and of itself. So his home was demolished earlier this year, but it is moving on to take on new life in an interesting way. They've made someone, some brilliant, beautiful person, has made bookends out of uh, salvaged pieces of wood from his house. Uh, and they're using, they have sold them. Unfortunately, they've all been sold. So you cannot buy any more Ray Bradbury bookends. I wish that I had heard about this in time to buy some. Uh, but a portion of the sale proceeds were donated to the Center for Ray Bradbury Studies at Indiana University. 
which I'm glad that exists. Yeah, they're going to recreate his home office. Oh, so great. At the center, using the uh, the money. It's they So they hired, the people who bought the house hired the Reuse People, which is a company that specializes in salvaging building materials for homes um, for whatever purpose. Mm-hmm. I guess to reuse them to build something else. But so they... I was under the impression that the people who bought Ray Bradbury's house were demolishing it and building some new fancy house and had, like, no cares mm. about Ray Bradbury at all. But they specifically hired these people with the intention of trying to salvage something from it for the university. So I, that's either a really great PR move for whatever company <laughs> bought this house, um, or they really actually did care, uh, which is good to know, and I guess. the bookends look awesome. There's a picture of them here in the io9 piece that have a there's, you know, old pieces of wood and there's a 451 thing like branded into them. Yeah, that's cool. It kind of got me started thinking about like, okay, if other writers houses got torn down, what would I want built from those houses that like is a fitting tribute? If any of them have built ins, I call them. If someone wants to auction off James Salter's uh, whiskey rocks glasses. Oh my god! I would take those. I saw that the uh, house that where F. Scott Fitzgerald wrote the first like three chapters oh, right, or whatever right. of um, a Great Gatsby of the Great Gatsby is for sale for like three million dollars. It's not even house. I think it's like an apartment. Mm-hmm. But I keep being like, I would like a tile out of the floor if that's okay. If I could just have, I can give you a fifty or like a for a tile. Yeah, or like a lacy flapper dress made from the curtains. I would wear that and never take it off. I would miss Haversham that dress. <laughs> It would be what I lived in for the rest of my life. <laughs> she's she's Daisy, but the Dickens, the version? Dickens version. Actually, there is nothing more you than the Dickens version of Daisy. I peak Nelson right here. <laughs> the Dickens version of Daisy. Yes, excellent. Very good. This is a weird. This is like a project runway challenge that wants to happen. Imagine that you're demolishing a famous writer's house and you have to make fashion out of something in it. <laughs> like I don't even know Alice Munro's slip cushions from her <laughs> from her couch. I'm imagining that Margaret Atwood has like snowshoes for her house in rural Canada. Oh yeah, you can make an interesting hat out of those. I bet. <laughs> a very couture. It could be a fascinator. This is a weird tangent we've gone down. <laughs> Margaret Atwood's snowshoe fascinator. <laughs> Show oh, I want it. title. <laughs> anyway. This is this is what we've been doing together all week. It's lovely. Yes. Let's yep. talk about technology. Okie dokie. Google Ventures is investing in a startup that makes personalized children's books. It's called Lost My Name. The company is. They use algorithms to create kids' books that are based on letters in the children's name. And they have received $9 million in funding from Google Ventures, Graycroft, the Shernan Group, Allen and & Company, and some other uh, VC firms and angel investors. Each book follows the exact same premise. The main character has lost his or her name and has to go on a journey to get it back. And the other characters in the book are determined by the letters in a given name. So the writer of this piece is Ruth Reader. And so she says, um, for my book, for instance, uh, I met a robot, a unicorn, a troll, and a hippo, R-U-T-H, each of which gave her a letter to help her get her name back. Um, so far, the company has sold 600,000 books in two years. Wow. That is a lot of books, but not yeah. $9 million in funding. For doing basically the same thing over and over. Yeah. Right? Like you mm-hmm. just stick the kid's name in an algorithm and print it. So what would yours be? Like um, Aardvark? <laughs> uh, Marmoset? <laughs> Ant? There are too many A's in my name. There are. Uh no, 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 no. What's an N animal? I'm ninja. Uh, oh, okay. I mean, that's not a ninja. She met a robot, you know. A True. Okay, okay. A ninja, uh-huh. a dinosaur. A oh, absolutely. And an- Could they just be all dinosaurs? Like an apatosaurus, a myosaurus. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. That's the level of customization that I'm requesting, dear company. Yes, Lost I would like name. to select the kind of animal and then specifics within. Would that be like the... Kingdom phylum class order family, like the genus and the species. <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't seen any think pieces about how this is like 
uber personalization for the me generation. You know? uh, if it were um, customized books for millennials, the internet would have burned down with the heat of a million think pieces already. <laughs> That's completely accurate. I think yeah, but these aren't new. We've got like, like my kids have books um, that you can record yourself reading. Oh, have cool. you seen these? Mm-hmm. That my, uh, my mother recorded a couple of those and gave them to them for Christmas. They're like, and here's Nana reading the Christmas story to you. And it's very sweet and nice. And personalized books for kids are cute. Yeah, it's I, really I sweet. It ma- kind of makes me wish that this company, and maybe what they're going to do with some of their $9 million, is develop other conceits for these books also. Like the little boy who lost his name, the little girl who lost her name is cute. But th- like, what's the next formula? You know, now that people love this story, what's the next formula that they could do? Like, mm. uh, you could plug in your favorite animals, and they could make you a story about your favorite animals. Uh, or your pet, give them your pet's name, right. and, or like what kind of pet you have and let them write a story about that, that would be cute. Yes. And you could give that to grownups as well. You could I would totally take a personalized picture book about my basset hound. The Adventures of Millie. <laughs> it's just be... Millie at the dog park sniffing everything. Or it's like, what does your dog do? Well, she has this wallow that she dug under our back porch and she hangs out in it. And then sometimes she sleeps under the bed. And she barks at her breakfast. She barks at her kibble. So there's some activities for Millie. Like it would be, you know, that's that's a really deep level of customization. Um, mm-hmm. You couldn't quite algorithm it, I don't think. But if they had like... You know, what is your dog's name? What kind of dog is your dog? What mm-hmm. are three things your dog does? That'd be kind of cool. That would require a little more work. I bet that, I mean, this, these algorithms, it's like, okay, Ruth, so R-U-T-H, robot, unicorn, troll, hippo. And then the algorithm must just like pull the picture of the robot and pull the picture of the unicorn and whatever text goes in, goes in it. So I bet like every kid who has a unicorn in their book has the same like chunk of text Yeah, I bet. about the unicorn. It's really creative, man. 600,000 books sold. Nothing to sneeze at. But Google, like, it's interesting that it's Google Ventures investing in this. Like, while many people are hand-wringing about the end of books, Google is looking at new ways to make books and and ways that could that are presumably going to be profitable. I love that the image on the head that accompanies the headline of this post is four Google tech bros in hipster glasses holding these children's like, books that they've created. To a one. They're all wearing dark jeans and funky sneakers and big black chunky glasses. And they all have like beards and or like eight day stubble. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> Rock that You get cliche. a tech bro and you get a tech bro. <laughs> <laughs> can I can I return it? I don't want it. I don't want a tech bro. Take Back Your Tech Bro will be our children's book. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know what to make of this next story. I'm curious about what you think. Well, Um, I think the the, uh, transition here is, speaking of things that sound like they were come up with via an algorithm, (laughs) right? Yes. Like somebody just took words in the literary world and plugged them into a headline generator Okay, now you can go. Oh, okay, sorry. That was just the setup. I'm ready. Yes. Um, Zadie Smith, you know, very literary writer, man booker, shortlisted novelist, Zadie Smith, is going to make her screenwriting debut, which that's a very interesting thing in and of itself. Uh, It is to write a space movie. A space adventure. (laughs) Zadie Smith writes space adventure. It just sounds like a headline generator. Like also the director is Bo Travail and he is best known for, uh, Oh no, sorry. The director's name is uh, Claire Dennis and she is best known for doing a movie called Bo Travail, which is a loose reworking of the Melville novella, Billy Budd. Yes, please. Yes. Yes. <laughs> so this is yes. a super interesting pairing. You should find Beau Travail. Maybe it's on Netflix. Oh, yeah. I could do that. I could have a I have a good I could have a French film night. So this new movie that Zadie Smith is working on is a space adventure set beyond our solar system okay. in a future that seems like the present. Don't know what that means. And she's writing it with her husband uh-huh. uh, and with Claire Dennis, who is the, uh, the, the new mm-hmm. film director. So, I mean, she's done stuff like this before. Not exactly like this, but um, White Teeth was made into a show uh, for Channel 4, which I guess Mm -hmm. is a British channel. I don't know if she worked on that, though. Um, 
And there is a film adaptation of On Beauty, which is her novel from 2005 that's in the works right now. I also don't know how much we're, how much she's involved in that either. But, so. like, if Zadie Smith had gotten a new book deal and it had been that, like, Zadie Smith was writing a space adventure novel. Here for it. it here, totally. But we'd have all been like, how did that happen? Yeah. It's got to be, like, a an interstellar kind of space thing where it's really about, like, Man's inhumanity to man and time and what does it mean? You know, mm-hmm. instead of like, as opposed to like The Martian, which is just like nerd in space doing nerd math science things. We, <laughs> <laughs> I much prefer that. But it's got, yeah, it's from like this really cerebral French director, Zadie Smith. Yeah, this feels like it, it can't possibly be like, this is not going to be like um the space movie version of like the saga comic book where you like bounce around on different planets with all kinds of imaginary creatures it's just going to be like humans having human angst in a different solar system yeah but i'm here for it sure i'll see it weird though like if you had asked me to guess last week like which literary writer is going to be announced as doing a space movie with a French director, I don't think that I would have hit on Zadie Smith in my first 100 guesses. No. Like, I would have sooner expected, like, Jonathan Franzen to write a rom-com starring Jennifer Aniston. You oh, know? Like, that's going to be the worst rom-com oh, ever. Oh, oh, absolutely. That's true. Yeah. I'm sad about the possibility of that. That is not a possibility. That would never, ever happen in life. You put it out there now. Someone's going to hear this. And then we're all going to have to sit through Jonathan Franzen's rom-com. And it's going to be your fault. (laughs) I apologize in advance to the internet. Please do not come burn my house down. Let's talk about something happy and cool. Okay. There are women in Charleston who have created a mobile bookstore. It's a bookmobile. It's a bookmobile. It's called the Itinerant Literate, which is fun and hard to say. (laughs) Yes, it is. I'm confused about that name. Itinerant Yeah, for a few years now, the peninsula uh, where Charleston is has had to make do with just one real independent bookstore. It's called Blue Bicycle Books. Um, I've been there a few times. It's located on King Street in downtown Charleston. It's charming. They have a very tolerant cat uh, that (laughs) put up with me and some friends, um, you know, having a little fun with it when we were visiting. Uh, There are other indie booksellers you can find, like, uh, you know, historical books at the Preservation Society of Charleston and religious books at Pauline Books and Media Center. But when it comes to a traditional new and used fiction, nonfiction, have some genre, Blue Bicycle is the only one. Uh, But soon it will be joined by this moving bookstore, the two-woman pop-up, which is in an Airstream trailer. It's just so perfect. Why did they not call us first? We will join them in this mission. This article calls it, uh, like, imminently Instagrammable. (laughs) Because it's in an Airstream trailer, and the the, the girls are, like, these cute little hip um, post-college students. Yeah, it's super cute. Yeah, after they graduated from college in 2012 from two different schools in the Atlanta area, and then they both went on to the Denver Publishing Institute, which is an intensive four-week program at the University of Denver that gives students a crash course in the publishing industry. So they met there, and they became friends. Um, and after that, they wound up working at the History Press, which is in Charleston. They still work there today, and they hatched this bookstore idea. Um, they wanted to open a bookstore. They saw it, it sort of like develop naturally. Um, they, you know, developed, they had a bunch of ideas and they started, you know, they started a Google doc, which is the, like, that's how you know that you're married to your business partner is yep. you're starting a secret Google doc about how you're going to do this thing. Um, that's at least how we know that we're serious about a potential project is someone on our back channel is like, well, now I'm going to make a, a spreadsheet for it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'll send a doc around and we'll all start working on it together. Mm-hmm. Um, so at one time they were talking about a seven year plan and they said five years seemed too short and 10 years seemed too long. And then about six months ago, they just decided to scrap the seven year plan of like doing a full bookstore thing and just do it. So they attended the American Bookseller Association Winter Institute, which is, which I've heard described as bookseller school. It's like a three-day educational retreat. Um, And before they left, they brainstormed enough options. So they bought their Airstream. I don't think they bought the Airstream yet. 
Oh, they haven't? No, I'm looking down here further. It says, on or around August 1st, they'll launch a crowdfunding campaign oh. to purchase an outfit in Airstream. So it I seems see. like right now they're just doing, they're just traveling. I guess out of their cars, I would assume. Because hmm. they have done a couple of events yeah. selling books in the community. Um, and they've developed a partnership with a local coffee shop that hosts mm. them on a semi-permanent basis for literary salons. That's so great. That's really cute. So, I so guess at the we, end of the summer, they're going to get the Airstream. We can watch for their crowdfunding campaign. I guess it'll probably be a Kickstarter or an Indiegogo for mm. uh, their goal is going to be $65,000 to purchase and outfit their Airstream to have their own mobile bookstore. They'll have to you know, rehab the inside of it with bookshelves and a computer. And uh, they're hoping that their first inventory will be about 3,000 titles. We should call them and invite them to drive it to Book Riot Live. Oh, yes, please. They could sit next to the Penguin book truck and then they can have like street fights. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we want. Yeah, totally. The Penguin It'll people can be the sharks PR. and these girls can be the jets. Right, yeah. And we'll have bookish West Side Story. How itinerant are you? Are you willing to come <laughs> up the coast to our event? I bet the promise of Margaret Atwood would be motivating. Ooh, yeah. That would get me. I'd take my Airstream anywhere. <laughs> I would take your Airstream anywhere, too. Well done. Well done. So they are having, oh, they're doing a big event for, um, they're having a To Kill a Mockingbird trivia night to celebrate the release of Harper Lee's new book. That's so smart. They're having a Harry Potter birthday party. Okay. So this is really cool. It's not, It seems like it's not just like drive the bookmobile around, sell mm-hmm. books to people like an ice cream store. Yeah, these like are like cool young book people. Yeah, like they're doing events and they're doing, yeah, that's neat. They're into the community, which I think is really great. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to email them. Do it. I'm going to do it. I just decided. Um, I can do that thing. You can. So before you have email. <laughs> I do have email. And their email is at the bottom of this article. And my boss is on vacation this week. Hi, Jeff. <laughs> uh, before we do new books, we want to thank our last sponsor this week. We've got Audible back. Uh, if you love books but can't ever seem to have enough time to read them, which that's all of us, mm. uh, then audiobooks and audible.com are the perfect solution for you. You can get to the books you've been meaning to read. You can get to the extra books that you want to add to your reading life. Turn your gym time, your commute time, your dog walking time, your cooking time. Sometimes I turn my shower time into book time using Audible. Um, they have over 180,000 audio programs, not just audiobooks, but also some original programming that they've developed um, from publishers, broadcasters, entertainers. They've got magazine and newspaper publishers, business information providers, you name it. You can find something or many somethings in Audible. The app is free. It works on iPhones, iPads, Android, Windows phones, and more than 500 other MP3 compatible devices. Unlike a streaming or rental service with Audible, you own your books. You can access them anytime and anywhere right from your phone. This is the thing that I really enjoy about Audible. I get, I have a subscription where I get two audiobooks per month. Um, I know what day my new credits become available. I go download, or I go purchase those audiobooks, and then I can scroll through the library in my phone when, I'm, when it's time for a new one, download one, listen for a while. Then sometimes I want to move on to something else, so I undownload it, and then later on, I can re-download it and come back. It's really great to just have permanent access to those books. They have a bunch of different plans for different price points and different uh, numbers of audiobooks per month. So depending on how heavy or light of an audiobook listener you are, there's something for you and you can scale up or down at any time. They also have the great listen guarantee, which is excellent. If you start an audiobook and you decide that you don't like the book you chose for any reason, no problem. You can exchange it if you're not happy with it for another title anytime, no questions asked. I, think- I do this once a month. Oh, you, Every month. You exchange one once a month? Yes. The, when I get a new credit, the books that I download, inevitably, I hate it. And I send it back every month. And it's gotten to where, like, I just start apologizing to, to the tech person They're that like, I'm talking to. Oh, it's that Nelson woman again. Like, I just, I should, I know I should listen to the sample and I never do. And I'm sorry. Give me back my credit. <laughs> and they always do. It's very nice. And then the second time you end up with something that you like? Yes. This is really funny. I don't know. 
I don't know what it is. I'm glad you've experienced it firsthand, though. Um, I'm currently listening. I tend to listen to mostly memoirs and nonfiction on audio because I can't pay attention to like build the world of a, a novel in my head while I'm doing other stuff. But listening to memoir feels like just a person talking to me about their life. Um, I'm currently listening to Yes Chef by Marcus Samuelson. Ooh, it's really fantastic. Uh, he uh, was adopted by Swedish parents when he was quite young, um, but from a home in Africa. And he writes about uh, early in the book, he writes about uh, who his parents were, who his family is or who his biological parents were, who his family is, what it was like moving to Sweden. Now he lives and works and is a famous restaurateur in a famous chef in New York City. Um, and it's wonderful about uh, culture and food and the role that food plays in our identity. Um, so the, the things that he picked up from his adoptive parents, Swedish background, the foods and flavors that he brought with him from his family of origin. Uh, it's it's such a delight. It's really lovely. I have missed my exit multiple times because I've just been like in a reverie about food and listening to Marcus Samuelson talk about it. Uh, it's, it's great, especially for summer, I'm finding. It's a really nice fit for me right now. Um, I also recently listened to Gumption by Nick Offerman. Does he read it? He does. Yes. Well so, done. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, about heroes of American history and how Offerman thinks that the thing that unites the people who have changed American culture is this sense of gumption and like risk takingness, basically. Uh, <laughs> and so each chapter is about a different one of the 21 people. And some of them are predictable historical figures like George Washington. Uh, and then some of them are Yoko Ono. <laughs> And we get all, you know, Offerman dives into their biographies. And I do have to say, like, content wise, some of it felt a little bit like Nick Offerman read some biographies of these famous people and then was giving book reports on them. Mm, but mm -hmm. his color commentary about these folks is really fun and interesting. And he's a great reader. Um, it, was, it, it was very much like having Nick Offerman ride along in the car with me and be like, hey, did you know this thing about George Washington? Uh, and there's, speaking of the West Wing earlier, there's a scene in like uh, the middle of the first season of the West Wing where President Bartlett is on the couch uh, in the Oval Office reading a book of George Washington's uh, like advice for life. And it's like, you know, 125 things that well-behaved people do. And it's stuff like, mm -hmm. uh, don't cross your legs, always sit with both feet on the floor. Offerman refers to a bunch of those as well and explains where George Washington got them. So you can hit the trifecta of George Washington, Nick Offerman, and President Bartlett with that one chapter. Nice. Mm -hmm. I'm way I'm, off on a tangent now. What have you listened to lately that did not disappoint you? Um, I'm listening to, I'm finishing up the Call the, Mid, uh, Call the Midwife, mm. which is a show that is, that's become hugely popular on the BBC um, that's based on this book. It's a memoir of a, a nurse in the 1950s in post-World War II London in the East End. It's a, it was a very, very poor neighborhood, kind of the slums and the docks of London. And she worked for the National Health Service as a midwife and moved there, moved into a, a convent, uh, which is where the midwifery practice was set up, an Episcopalian convent with a bunch of nuns. So she lived and worked with these kind of forward-thinking nuns who were um, really into women's health and... Uh, well, yeah, women's health history and midwifery and all that. So it's it's this really great intersection of history, which I love, and feminism and women's issues. Um, and the show has really great costumes. So there's that. Awesome. But the book, yeah, the book is great. I didn't realize that every episode of the show is taken out of a chapter of the book about a different woman in the neighborhood that they assisted the, in the first couple of seasons. After season three, I think it, it isn't and it isn't following the books anymore. But um yeah, it's really, it's really interesting and fascinating. I love it. And I'm about to start Smoke Gets in Your Eyes. Oh, it's so good. Oh, do you remember who wrote it? I can't remember the, her Caitlin name. Doughty. Okay, thank you. Yes, which is a memoir of a woman who became a funeral director. Mm -hmm. She becomes a, yes. um, yeah, an undertaker. An undertaker. Right, right, right. Um, and so I like to read really interesting and happy and uplifting things in the summer. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, 
But I've, I've heard about this book for since it came out a couple of years ago. So I'm really excited about listening to that. It's great. It was a really fun read. I'm interested to hear about how it is on audio. Um, for Book Riot listeners, Audible is offering a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot to start your free trial and pick out your free audiobook. You can take, you know, selections from the recommendations we've just given. You can hit us up on Twitter and we'll give you some advice. Um, show your support for the Book Riot podcast and get your free audiobook audiobook and your 30-day trial again at audiblepodcast.com slash book riot and thanks to audible for sponsoring the show we're always happy to have them okay new books new books new books this first one out this week i know is a book that we both loved called shadow shaper by daniel jose older it's so much fun it is so much fun do you want to pitch this one yeah oh i can't remember the um main character's first name i was just thinking trying to wreck my brain anyway it takes place in a in a in brooklyn it's young adult urban fantasy i Mm -hmm. guess would be the classification um the heroine is a 16 year old girl she's latina she lives in brooklyn and she is at a party one day and gets attacked by a zombie-ish sort of monster-like figure and then corpse thing yeah corpse thing corpse thing Mm -hmm. um brooklyn corpse thing and, and that sets off this series of events that leads to her finding out that her family is keeping all these secrets about some kind of fantastical, magical abilities that they have. She discovers that she has the ability to insert spirits into art and kind of bring the art to life to do her bidding or not, depending on if it goes wrong or not. Um, and there is a group um, or there's a villain that's trying to destroy people who have this ability in Brooklyn. And so it's a very... Um, fantastical and weird and cool kind of noirish the the heroine is so kick butt um the brooklyn in this oh man i want to live in this brooklyn yeah and i feel like this brooklyn is a lot closer to real brooklyn despite the fact that there are corpse things than the brooklyn that i read about in literary fiction most of the time that's all magically white that's all magically white and like like there's a lot of um not a lot but there are several instances in Shadow Shaper that kind of poke fun at that gentrified version of Brooklyn mm-hmm. um, that made me laugh out loud, and I actually pitched this book in my last YouTube video about books to modern books to read if you love um, A Tree Grows in Brooklyn, and I think that yeah if you like the thing about A Tree Grows in Brooklyn that you like is Brooklyn as setting or Brooklyn as a character, um, then you will really, really enjoy this. And it's just a great, fun summer read. Super fast. It is. It's super fast. It's scary. Uh, I thought Older just imagined himself into the experiences of a teenage girl very believably. and with So a, impressive. Yeah, with a great, you know, understanding and empathy for the character. It's it's really great and just so clever. Um, he's a wonderful, nice guy. He's speaking at Book Riot Live also. Uh, All the authors are <laughs> belong to us. Older is a Book Riot favorite. Favorite um, Shadow Shapers, his first young adult book. It's really, really fantastic. Um, in paperback this week, we've got How to Tell Toledo from the Night Sky by Lydia Netzer, which we both also loved. Uh, this is a novel about uh, a man and a woman who are both scientists. They, um, She does like super fancy research about dark matter essentially and like the stuff that you use a hadron collider for and he is studying like what the origins of space can tell us about uh like god basically Mm -hmm. um their mothers were best friends. They raised the children separately with um, with the intent of having them meet and fall in love when they were older. So there's this like orchestrating mother piece to it. Like the moms would, um, the mothers both raised the kids singing like very, this very unique lullaby and gave them a bunch of shared experiences that when they met, they'd be able to be like, oh, you know that song? I know that song. How weird. No one else knows that song. Stuff that would make them feel connected to each other. Um, So they do meet and they do fall in love, but it doesn't go nearly as smoothly as their scheming mothers might have liked. Netzer has this wonderful, quirky voice. Her language is a real joy to read. The the story is compelling and it moves you right along, but the language is really fun to spend time with as well. Um, And the woman character's mother is an alcoholic. And so we also see her dealing with that difficult family relationship and dealing with her mother's alcoholism and how that how the discovery that her her mother was scheming in this way is tied into her other complicated feelings about her relationship with her mom. Uh, 
Um, and there's some video game stuff. There's uh, sex in a Hadron Collider. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. I guess I should have led with that. You really <laughs> If you're looking for a really excellent read with beautiful language and sex in a particle collider, this is the book for you. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. This is a perfect thing to read on a, a vacation. I read it on a winter vacation when the galleys first came out. But I, I think if I were picking books to like read on the beach right now, this is what I would want. There's substance. There's a lot of style to the language. It's just a really great story. Um, and if you want to read something weird and awesome, Preparing the Ghost by Matthew Gavin Frank is out in paperback this week. This is an extended essay about uh, the giant squid and the man who first photographed it in the eight, in the late 1800s. Uh, I have watched like every documentary that the Discovery Channel has about the Architeuthis and how Mm. elusive and difficult it is to find it and these scientists who devote their lives just trying to like get a glimpse of one. Uh, So this was like this book was made for me. Gavin Frank has this Matthew Gavin Frank has this really interesting writing style where he starts off like, I'm going to tell you the story about the giant squid and the man who first photographed it. But it spins out into all of these tangents of thought and other things that he researches along the way. And the obsession that the man who first photographed the giant squid had with it and sort of how Matthew Gavin Frank becomes obsessed with that idea and that story along the way. Um, That reminded me in similar ways to like um, The Lost City of Z, where the where David Grand becomes obsessed with telling the story about the guy's obsession with finding the lost city of Z. Uh, it's it, this is not like a straight informational essay. If you're just looking for like a documentary, um, this is not that. It's creative and weird and delightful, and you'll feel a little like you don't quite know where you are or what's happening at times. But it's in the best possible way. I just thought it was really fantastic and charming and and strange and also packed with the kinds of stories that you can tell at those dinner parties that we're all always ima- you know, imagine. <laughs> imagining we're going to. Yeah, that where you need to have uh, strange anecdotes to share from, from your reading. And so that's called Preparing the Ghost. Those are our new books this week. That is our show. Uh, if you're in the U.S., I hope that you are having a lovely holiday weekend. Thank you to our sponsors, The Bones of You by Debbie Howell, which is available at kensingtonbooks.com, to Scribd. Get your free one-month trial at scribd.com slash bookriot, to Mon by Kim Thuy, and to Audible. It's audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot for your free audiobook download and your free 30-day trial there. Also, you can get your $20 discount to Book Riot Live at bookriotlive.com using the code wheelhouse at checkout. You can get the show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. Shoot us an email at podcast at bookriot.com. Amanda's on Twitter at I'm Amanda Nelson. You can find me at Rebecca Shinsky, S-C-H-I-N-S-K-Y. And of course, Book Riot is all over the everything. <laughs> Am I, We're all I, up in your business. We are all up in your business. What did I miss? That's it. Anything? That's it. All right. Well, have a good week and happy reading. <laughs>